0: Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and we have quite a show for you today. I'm actually going to be talking about an animal that has quite a huge effect on wildlife, native wildlife, and it's an animal that you probably wouldn't think has such an impact on our native species. Also known as man's best friend, it is, yes, the dog. Oh, yes. Not,
1: not the flea, <laughs> not the head louse.
2: Not the articulated the the python. Um, what's, your, what's your story called?
0: Um, my story's called, well, it actually comes from, I can't claim this as, as my own, but the researchers have just put out an article in a conversation yeah. called The Bark Side of Dog Ownership. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, that is pretty good. It is pretty good, yeah. yeah. As
1: long as they're not barking up the wrong tree.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. They don't want to make a dog's breakfast of it, do they? No. Oh, goodness. Chris, what have you got for us today?
2: Well, I have another in my very irregular series of how do they work? And today I'm going to be talking microwave ovens. How oh, do they work? Oh,
0: great.
2: Yeah. You might have wondered. You might already know. Well, even if you know, I am going to hopefully confirm your suspicions of what's going on inside that little box in the corner okay. that goes ping.
0: All right. Stu, what about you?
2: Well,
1: I am going to be speaking to uh, Stuart Frusher from the University of Tasmania.
0: What? Stuart? Interview Stuart? Yeah. Double Stew.
1: Confusing. Dumb stew. Stu. Um, we won't be talking about things not to put in the microwave. We will be talking <laughs> about how climate change is affecting animal populations, specifically where they are. Oh, and, yeah. and, in fact, all life is possibly going to be affected by climate change, moving right. their territories uh, in in novel and interesting ways, which will affect us as human beings as well. So interesting to talk to Stuart Frusher about that.
0: All right. So when you think about feral animals killing native animals, what sort of ferals do you think about?
1: Probably mostly cats.
0: Yeah, cats.
1: And foxes.
0: Yep, foxes, maybe cane toads. Oh, yes. Yeah. Or maybe um, rats if they're out competing or rabbits. Um, Water buffalo. Water buffalo. Yeah. Goats, pigs. pigs. yeah. The point is... Um, <laughs> the, we, we There's hear, a lot of them. <laughs> there is a lot of them. We hear a lot about them in Australia. Um, but one that we certainly don't hear much about is dogs. Yeah, our best friends are sort of immune to the same vitriol that we reserve for the other feral pests in Australia. But a new review by Australian researchers looks into the worldwide impact of domestic dog populations on wildlife, especially those wildlife that are on the threatened or vulnerable list. And the results are quite surprising. So to get a big picture of dogs around the world, because we're talking about the whole world, not just Australia, it's globally estimated there are about one billion dogs in the world. That's a lot of happy little dog faces out Uh, there, isn't it? Yeah. That's a lot of pats waiting to happen. That is
2: a lot of tails wagging.
0: (laughs) Um, They're classified into three groups based on their interaction with humans. So you've got feral dogs. Obviously, they have little to no human interaction. They're probably less, less about pats and more about... Um, nice. Barking and biting.
3: Mm-hmm. You've
0: got free-ranging dogs that might have some interaction with humans, but spend a fair bit of time getting up to their own mischief. Is that like the Maybe in pats? that dog that
2: wanders from town to town, saving people.
0: Uh, yeah, like um, that guy. Okay. Yep.
2: <laughs> <Or> like <laughs> like, <that>. like Benji.
0: <laughs> Do you want to go through every dog and me to categorise where yeah, yeah, they sure. stand? Yeah, Rin Tin Tin. Where does he Rin-tin-tin, come in? Rin Tin Tin. Well, he might sit in. The third category, which is the dogs that have, are completely dependent on humans. Would right. you say that? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Although uh, he did save a lot of them as well. Yeah, so. and I'm
2: thinking now, Brain from Inspector Gadget, who did more of the saving, wasn't dependent on humans at all. The <laughs> humans are dependent on Brain. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so the completely dependent dogs, that would be most dogs in Australia. Would most be. domestic dogs. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Most yeah. domestic God, dogs. dependent. Yeah. So what we already know is that all these types of dogs can have negative impacts on biodiversity mm. in different sorts of ways. And as an aside, in this paper, um, I love, or at least in the conversation article that went along with it, I love the use of the word ecological print to uh, look at how the dogs um, impact on the environment. Very
1: good. Very good, isn't mm. it? Yeah.
0: yeah. So using the IUCN, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature, Um, their threatened species list the researchers looked at each species that's on that list and for each of those species they have a list of the major threats attributed to you know why that species is on that list and they drew out all the different species that had dogs as one of their major threats and from like just from doing this just from pretty much you know doing a google search of of major threats and dogs just
2: running down right down the table basically yeah just
0: pretty much just running down the table they found dogs to be the third most damaging mammal in the world wow but, yeah i know
2: d-
1: d- does that does that put us at the top though or is that
0: oh okay so we're <laughs> the. okay so yes we are the number one and then you've got cats right then you've got rodents okay then you've got dogs right yeah. So
2: we're not on the list. We're kind of above. We're like a super threat. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just a given that it we're, that we're doing given. all of the damage. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because <laughs> everything else on that list that's like, you know, habitat destruction and... Cats and dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all our fault. yeah, it is all our fault. Yeah. Fundamentally, yeah. All,
1: all that logging that cats do. It's, it's just...
0: <laughs> anyway. They're just sharpening
1: their claws, honestly. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Dogs are actually, they've been involved in the extinction of at least 11 species, including the Hawaiian rail, which is a little ground-dwelling bird. Mm. It's always the ground-dwelling birds that get it first, isn't it? And the Tonga ground skink is another one that dogs have had a, you know, particular, particularly big hand slash paw in um, wiping out off the face of the earth.
1: Interesting that their island... Based yes. animals. So the yep. dogs, obviously, when it's a restricted area, there's less
0: yeah, when there's less restrict- places for
1: them to
2: escape. You know yeah. you lock them in the house all day and they just go crazy and they tear up the, um,
1: tear up the cushions. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Plus, I guess a lot of islands might have less of the completely dependent on humans dogs and more of the free ranging dog mm-hmm. sort of vibe going on. In terms of dogs, they are actually a potential threat to 188 threatened species worldwide. So you've got 96 mammals, 78 bird, 22 reptile, and three amphibian species. And the researchers found that dogs had the biggest impact um, on certain parts of the globe. So like we said, um, the Pacific, um, also Southeast Asia, South America, and Central America. And the Caribbean was where dogs had the biggest impact. But other hotspot areas include Australia, the Pacific and the remainder of Asia. So right. we are not immune. No. Our dogs are doing damage. Anyway, so, I mean, that's that's when you're talking about sort of lethal impacts on okay. wildlife. But there are also um, a whole lot of non-lethal impacts going on. If you've got dogs interacting with wildlife, mm-hmm. obviously, when you've got, you know, in, a, in any ecosystem, you've got different, you've got non-lethal and lethal impacts. Some of the non lethal impacts would include uh, the spread of disease. So, dogs can be carriers for diseases, things like um, spreading canine diseases, uh, increasing the disease risk for endangered African wild dogs oh yeah. from um, domestic dogs, that's been noted, interbreeding with other canid species, mm-hmm. competing for resources, causing disturbances, or um, by chasing or harassment is one of those things. Hmm. Oh,
3: they do like dog a good harassment. chase. They do they? like yeah. a good mm. chase.
0: I've been chased on a motorbike by a dog a couple of times. It's one of the more terrifying things. Were
2: you on the motorbike or the dog on the motorbike? <laughs> what the dog was doing <laughs> on my motorbike, tell you. I'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but one of the impacts, one of the non-lethal impacts that I think us Australian dog owners should take most note of is the impact of uh, wild animals perceiving dogs as a threat and subsequently changing their behaviour to ah. avoid them. So, for example, a 2007 study near Sydney found that um, dog walking in parklands and national parks actually um, had the effect of reducing uh, the abundance and the species richness
2: of birds. I have heard birds reacting to dogs when you go walking through. You know, The, yeah. the, the alarm calls go up.
0: Yeah. Even, yeah. even when dogs are on leads and, yeah. you know, they're well behaved, birds can smell them and, you know... It, Well, I see
2: the shape, of predator's shape.
0: Yeah, they see the predator shape. And if they're, you know, if they... I mean, dogs wee everywhere anyway, Mm. but they leave that smell around and that can impact the mammal populations as well. Mm. So I guess this is especially important when you're thinking about taking your dog to some bushland, maybe some undisturbed bushland with a lot of birds. And one of the main reasons why national parks don't let dogs there. So, Mm. I mean, I guess it's frustrating to not be able to go into the national park with your dog because you want to enjoy nature with your dog.
2: And you think, my dog's well-behaved.
0: And you think, yeah, and you keep it on a leash and it's fine. But really there is like all these other factors going on that you don't even realise. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe as the dog-owning and loving nation uh, we are, we should be looking further into what local impacts dogs are having on our beloved native species in
2: general. We shouldn't just roll over and accept it. Microwave ovens, how do they work?
1: You put something in and you shut the door and you hit start and they And then you come back a minute later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: That's how they work, Chris. It's very easy.
1: Yeah, short story. (laughs)
2: Let's let us make it a bit longer than that. Let's do the long version, a slightly longer version. You're
1: going to make a short story long. Okay, fine. All right,
2: long. okay. I am going to microwave this whole thing. We're going to not have a quick um, resolution. Um, so, okay, what do they do? It's pretty obvious from the name. They cook your food using microwaves. I know what you're thinking. What is a microwave?
0: A microwave is on the electromagnetic spectrum. Bingo. It's somewhere there. I don't know where.
2: Well, it's it's normally depicted as being between radio waves okay, so end, that... and infrared light, which is kind of getting oh. the, the visible, well, towards the visible spectrum. Obviously, infrared light is not visible.
0: So if we were to visualise this wave, how big would it be?
2: Well, this is an interesting question because that when I say that where it is on the spectrum, this has kind of changed a little bit over time because now we are using higher frequencies for our radio transmissions, for our data transmissions because the higher frequency you have, the more data you can transmit. So... Their frequency of them is two point four five gigahertz, uh, which equates to about twelve point two centimeters wavelength. So, okay, the microwave oven uses a produces its strong, intense microwaves using a device called a magnetron, which is a pretty a cool magnetron. Name. A sounds magnetron. like a ride
0: I went on. Once. I think, yeah, I've been in that one. That was the Gravitron.
2: Yeah, the Gravitron. Magnetron sounds like a villain
1: from Transformers or something.
2: (laughs) Somewhere between that. Yeah. Magnetrons were developed in the 1940s for use in radar. Um, You know, they're using, like, microwaves for radar. Because the higher frequencies you get, also the more directional they are. So they were using – they used to produce a strong microwave pulse for radar. Because the the idea of of heating food with radio waves had existed prior to this. But – they, they're making these, these these powerful microwave transmitters, and one of the guys was working on it, a guy called um, Perry Spencer, he noticed that the, the chocolate bar in his pocket melted when he was near the, um, the magnetron. So then he tried it with some popcorn, and that worked. And really? Then, and then the third That's thing excellent. they tried was an egg, which then blew up in their faces. And fortunately, that does not happen when you put your mobile phone near an egg.
1: So d- does that also mean that he was getting slightly cooked by the magnetron while he was... Observing these things happening,
2: <laughs> quite possibly a little bit. Um, so it probably wasn't safe to be standing in front of. However, the it's it, look. It is an interesting thing because they don't penetrate far into into tissue. It's kind of a um it's kind of a payoff there, and it also depends on the kind of shielding you have and this sort of stuff. I was going to say, but humans are full of the key thing that that um, microwave ovens need in order to cook things, which is basically water. Water. Yeah. So the way they work is through something called dielectric heating, which is essentially where the the, the water molecules that are, in the, that are in the water or in the food... Uh, now, a water molecule, you know what it looks like? It's got, it's got H2O. It's got two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, uh, but it's not symmetrical. The hydrogens are kind of on one side. It looks kind of like Mickey Mouse, if you've seen those diagrams of it. Uh, And the the hydrogen side is more positive and the oxygen side is more negative. So it's got this kind of dipole. It's got a positive end and a negative end. When you apply an electric field to that, it tries to line up with the electric field. When you have an oscillating electric field, like with radio waves or a microwave, then it kind of fits backwards and forwards. And as it does that, it kind of then moves and jostles around and then jostles other atoms and molecules around and heats the rest of the, the food.
0: Right. So
2: that's basically how it heats your food. That is how the cooking pit works. In terms of the, the magnetron itself, that is kind of a cool device. So uh, the magnetron is this, uh, this cylindrical object that has a cathode in the middle. It gives out negatively charged electrons and a positively charged anode around the outside of the cylinder. Uh, so the, the electrons go from the, the middle to the outside. Okay, pretty yep. straightforward. But then as well as that, it has a big powerful magnet Stuck to the side of it. And the magnet, magnetic field makes the electrons not go straight out, it makes them go sort of spiral out in, in you know, increasing circles to get to the outside. And then in the middle of that, you have a bunch of cavities that it passes through and when it passes those it sets up a resonating and oscillating electric magnetic field it's been likened to blowing over the top of a bottle you know you blow the top of a bottle and you get a sound out of it mm. basically as the electrons go past these cavities they set up an oscillation inside it and so the frequency you get depends on the size of the cavity mm-hmm. those um, oscillations an oscillating electromagnetic field that becomes your microwaves which are then funneled out using a metal waveguide into the center of the oven to do the dirty work yeah, so that, that's kind of pretty cool. Now, a few things to note there. The microwave is basically a metal box. Uh, all this stuff is, is out of metal. And as being a metal box, it tends to keep most of the microwaves inside there. So they're generally fairly safe. Uh, it's what's called a Faraday cage, kind of the, the metal kind of shields it and keeps the, the, the electromagnetic waves trapped inside. But you might notice that at the glass door of the microwave, you can see through it. Mm. Mm. Cause it's got a little mesh there.
0: Yeah, the mesh.
2: Now, how big did I say the, the microwaves were? You
0: said they were about 12 and a half centimeters in wavelength
2: yeah and one of the cool things with waves is sound listening chris yeah yeah. waves tend not to be able to go through a gap that's much smaller than their wavelength yep. so these 12 oh. centimeter microwaves can't fit the little holes in the mesh but visible light which is much 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 smaller mm. on the spectrum that can fit through so you can see through but the microwaves can't get out and that's a pretty <laughs> cool thing that's
0: very cool That's pretty cool
2: <laughs> you may have noticed that again though we're talking about all these little metal metal components of the microwave. So the question then will be, why can't you put metal in the microwave? Why is yeah. there put metal in the microwave?
1: Because it makes sparks, or so I've been told. I've never done it.
2: Yeah, what happens if you put a metal object in the microwave, this electromagnetic field will build up. It'll cause uh, an oscillating electric current within the metal object. It basically acts like an antenna that's receiving this, this transmission. So the metal will, will heat up from the oscillations. If it's very thin, then it will burn effectively. Like here, um, if you put a CD in the, in the microwave, the thin metal coating on a mm. CD... Or will, alfoil or something. Burn up. Alfoil apparently should be thick enough. Oh, right. But, yeah, really thin metal. Um, yeah, the carbonate. foil
1: in a CD is a couple of microns thick, yeah. so it just disappears.
2: Or if you put a really old kind of um, you know, casserole dish that's got little gold uh, oh. sort of trim on it, that'll probably you know, not survive very well. Um, but the other thing is that if you have pointy bits on the end of things, say if you put, would have put, for some reason, a fork in the microwave or you know a bit of wire or something like that in the microwave or aluminium foil that's got crinkles in it, um, then the points will kind of, the, the field will get very intense at those points, and that's where it will spark. That's where it'll break the, the, the dielectric constant of the air and will cause sparking, which of course is a bad thing that you generally don't want. The other thing to note is that when, when, the, when the food heats, it basically absorbs the energy of the microwave going through it. So the energy is going somewhere. If you don't have something there that can heat due to the, due to the microwave action on so it, then the microbes will just bounce around inside the metal box and they will resonate, and you can blow up the magnetron, which sounds like a bad thing, blowing up a magnetron, mm. let's be honest. Yeah, so those are, the, those are some of the things you should and shouldn't put in a microwave, I guess. Any other kind of queries about dangerous microwave objects?
1: No, I think, I think we've... But the one thing is if you, if you follow any recipes for yeah. microwaving food, it will often tell you to let it sit after you've microwaved it, and that's because it doesn't penetrate all the way into the yeah. food. So really what it's doing when you're letting it sit is conducting the heat To the centre of Mm. your food. Because if you try and eat it straight out of the microwave, you'll find the middle's still cold and the outside's really, really hot and you'll burn your tongue.
2: Yeah, basically. um, It's not the actual microwave's being stuck in there. There's no radiation left in your food. So it's not dangerous. But, yeah, you're quite right. Um, So stir your food and enjoy the miracle cooking of the future.
0: (laughs) Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. The
1: impacts of a changing climate are already being recorded and felt in various parts of the world, and scientists are among the first on the scene to notice and record and analyse what's actually happening. So one of the things that's um, going to really be impacted by a changing climate is not just human activity, but the activity of other living things as well. So, I've got uh, Professor Stuart Frusher, who's the Director of the Centre for Marine Socioecology at the University of Tasmania, and we're going to ask him about some of these impacts that will affect other species. Uh, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Professor Frusher.
3: Ah, it's great to be here. So, the impacts
1: of climate change are, you know, I mean, people are worried about, you know, the changing climate, but I think for the most part, the extent of the change is probably escaping a lot of people. What what sort of things are going to be impacted by changing climate over or throughout the world?
3: Well look to put it very easily, basically everything. The world as we know is is changing and look a lot of people are already recognizing this, whether they've been indigenous communities which are seeing changes in uh, for instance the uh, herding of reindeer in the Arctic uh, or whether it be uh, the communities which are now being subject to uh, some of the uh, health issues associated with things like malaria or dengue fever shifting uh, as our climate warms to uh, recreational fishers here in uh, Australia who are seeing some quite interesting and, to them, quite positive benefits as we see some of the warmer water game fishing species start moving further south.
1: So you mentioned the, uh, the Arctic and Indigenous people in the Arctic. So those extremely cold environments, are they sort of showing changes more rapidly than other areas or is this sort of a global effect?
3: It's a global effect, but there's certainly some areas which are uh, warming faster than others. The Arctic is certainly one of those areas. People are surprised to learn that our oceanic waters off the southeast of Australia is actually a global hotspot. We're warming at nearly four times the average of the globe. So there are a range of areas around the world which are warming faster, but the overall trend is certainly one of warming.
1: So the um, h- how are people measuring these, these warming events? I mean, they're obviously measuring directly uh, climatic information, but what other things are, are signs that the... That there are changes in the uh, in the global climate.
3: Well, some of these things are being measured by researchers in the research community, but a lot of them are being measured by basically just general citizens like you and I. There's one project, for example, in Southeast Australia called uh, RedMap, although it's now national, which looks at the and it stands for the Range Extension Database, and that basically has users of the marine environments. Uh, predominantly recreational fishers and divers, who are recording when they see new species, and it's amazing the number of species that we're seeing. Not only new ones coming into our waters, but also ones which normally you'd only see through summer when you've got the warm in summer temperatures, but now are uh, overwintering, and so they're now setting up residence. Some of these animals we're now seeing are breeding more prolifically than they have in summer waters. So it really is uh, affecting the climate, uh, the globe globally.
1: As far as the natural uh, movement of, of wild species goes, that's, that's sort of, um, I guess, a surprise to find that it's happening so quickly. But this is also going to affect species that we, that we grow uh, for economic reasons, you know, all, all agricultural crops and forestry crops and those sorts of things. Are we seeing those impacts as well?
3: Yes, certainly. We're, we've seen a lot of uh, changes in the distribution of terrestrial agricultural activities and marine uh, ocean, oceanic activities. An example here in, uh, just in southeast Tassie is that a lot of the wine companies are beginning to buy up land in Tasmania because they recognise that with, warming, with the warming temperatures that these areas are now going to be more suited for particular varieties of grape which were normally grown outside of Tasmania. There are other areas, for instance in if we look at the North Sea, we've seen the extension of mackerel, a very common fishery up there, which now has started to move further into the Icelandic waters. And so there are whole issues between jurisdictional ownership of these species that are now beginning to occur. And in the South Pacific we're seeing the big tuna species in many of these island states, a substantial portion of their income comes from their tuna fleets. And we're seeing the tuna species starting to move further to the east and therefore those countries that had much higher catches in the west of the Pacific are now going to have quite substantial changes affecting the livelihoods of some of those countries.
1: It's even starting to impact uh, international economics and, and probably cause sort of international tension between countries who will be sort of, uh, I guess, fighting each other over the, the resources that have shifted away from them?
3: Certainly. We've already seen that in the example I mentioned about the mackerel. It was called the mackerel wars because the quota that had been traditionally allocated to uh, the British fleets, now that's moved into Iceland, and Iceland are now catching more than and seeing a lot more fish. Than their quota would allow them to have, and so there are quite a lot of international arguments uh, developing between people. The other issue is that, for instance, in some of the health issues like the shift in malaria or dengue fever, now the costs associated with the you know the, the global effort to try and minimise the impact of these diseases now has to be spread over a much greater distance. And that money has to come from somewhere, and often it means that something else has to fall off the agenda.
1: That's a worry in itself, and and I, I guess also the um, the spread of human pathogens is worrying. But also the the, um, the potential for, uh, say, plant pathogens or animal pathogens to to spread to new to new areas is also an issue that probably needs to be uh, prepared for at least.
3: Yes, exactly that, because uh, we're seeing, for instance. Some of, in, the, in the Arctic, some of the uh, deer populations are shifting and with them they're now getting the introduction of some of the ticks into, uh, into herds of reindeer which had never been in contact with the other deer species. We're seeing, uh, for instance, in Canada, there's been an increase in Lyme disease which comes from a tick on one of the deer populations. And we're seeing in both, as you say, plants, animals whether they be in a terrestrial or the marine uh, domain, that they're coming into uh, and entering new ecosystems. Those ecosystems are are then changing. And with them, there's the potential for them to meet other species which previously had been isolated and therefore hadn't been exposed to some of these diseases previously
1: it seems like the, um, the impacts are going to be pretty wide-ranging, and it's quite obvious that it's not just a theoretical concept um, that global warming is already having... Uh, global climate change, rather, is already having an effect on natural populations and on uh, human agricultural activities as well, which is... It's all quite uh, worrying, really.
3: Yeah, the, 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 we've seen on... Uh, in the terrestrial sphere, we've seen a shift poleward of approximately 17 kilometres per decade and in marine tax about 72 kilometres per decade and in the sea what we what we see is a species moving deeper and on the terrestrial we also see them going up mountains and coffee's an example of that where there's where a lot of now coffee plantations are beginning to move up mountains and you can understand that previously some of these areas may have been designated as protected areas or because of, they weren't suitable for growing crops may have been seen as ref- refugia for animals and plants. Now if these places become more suitable it's, it's potential for there to be further impacts on some of the biodiversity issues around the world. The, the rates are quite staggering when you consider that currently since the 1880s, we've only seen our temperature increase by 0.85 degrees. And we're talking now in in the latest uh, international agreements, for instance in Paris, of trying to limit it to 2 degrees. But even if at at the current rate, with the current global commitments, we're probably only going to reach 2.7 to 3.7 degrees. So we're going to see an increase of at least 4 three to four times the warming that we've already experienced. So we're really not only going into scenarios where we're going to see this accelerated change, but some of the consequences of that, we're only beginning to understand and, and hit the tip of the iceberg. And so it is quite concerning that there are going to be large scale ecosystem changes, which are going to probably have impacts on food security, patterns of disease transmission, carbon sequestration, and probably human conflict as well.
1: It's really good that I guess um, people are, you know, recording this and researching and and analysing what's going on. Um, But uh, we have to cut you off, Professor Frusher. but uh, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, and uh, it's really interesting and also slightly worrying to hear uh, all the work that's going on in this area. Okay, thank
3: you very much.
1: That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in in Science!
0: Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast.